Seeking the Extraordinary is sponsored by The Colony Group, a national wealth and business management company that seeks the extraordinary by pursuing an unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about how The Colony Group manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. Welcome, fellow seekers of the extraordinary. Welcome to our shared quest. A quest not for a thing, but for an idea. A quest not for a place, but into deep, inner, unexplored regions of ourselves. A quest to understand how we can achieve our fullest potential by learning from others who have done or are doing exactly that. Extraordinary stories of overcoming anguish. Every single one of them had lost somebody from their family. I will never give up on trying to lessen that conflict. People who have stood up to challenges with true courage. Do something in life that, that you have a passion for, something that you enjoy and you find fulfilling. That's where you have your greatest success. Stories that will enlighten and inspire. What I said to him is absolutely a cliche, but the journey is more important than the end result. May we always have the courage and wisdom to learn from those who have something to teach. Join me now in Seeking the Extraordinary. I'm Michael Nathanson, your Chief Seeker of the Extraordinary. Today's guest is just as likely to break your heart as he is to inspire you to do what you once thought was impossible. Actually, I guarantee that he and his story will do both, as they already have for me. Perhaps that's why his book, which I could not put down and highly recommend, is called Undefeated, From Tragedy to Triumph. He is the son of a Hall of Fame NFL legend who was extraordinary in his own ways, having an equally successful career first as a lawyer, then in business, and ultimately as the host of the HBO series Inside the NFL. But he's not here today just because he had a famous father. Our guest lived a youth of what I would call adventure. He grew up with a loving family and with the privilege of spending lots of time having fun and getting into trouble with friends and family. He struggled a bit with school, but like his father and older brother, was a standout athlete. And that description probably does him a disservice. Like his father and brother, he was a feared linebacker whose presence on the field was felt not only by his opponents, but also by his own team. He was the player that the other team always had to prepare for. He went to college at the Citadel, where he again excelled at football and even managed to exceed the success he had as a player in high school. Things were going well for our guest, who was voted the Citadel's most valuable player. But on October 26, 1985, in a play against East Tennessee State, he dislocated his neck and, at the young age of 19, was instantly paralyzed from the shoulders down. In fact, his life was now in grave danger. Suffice it to say that his parents and siblings got the call No one wants to get. Your son is dying. Get here now. Now, his full story, including what happened next, is really not for me to tell. The story is best told directly by our guest, not me. But that's only the tragedy side of the story. 
The triumph started around seven months after his injury when he got himself weaned off the ventilator that was keeping him alive. Despite the longest odds against him, he obviously survived. And he's here with us today over 36 years later, not just surviving, but thriving, determined to walk again, determined to ensure that all who are paralyzed walk again, determined to change the world. Our guest is now president of the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis, co-founded by his famous father and the very doctor who saved his life. He says that his goal is to get everyone out of these wheelchairs. Just reading his life story has already changed my life. He is the brother of Nick and Gina. He is the son of Terry. He is the son of Nick Bonaconti. Please welcome the extraordinary Mark Bonaconti. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Cole. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm feeling just so inspired by your story, and I am so looking forward to this discussion. I've been looking forward to it since you and I first talked about a month ago. How are you today, Mark? I'm doing great. But, you know, that introduction, while it's very nice, you know, I think you'll understand that this is a, this is a team of pro- team projects. So there's a lot of people who have made my life what it is today. I gathered that, and I, I largely observed that as a theme from your book, and I'm going to give you plenty of chances to talk about that, and I give you my word on that, since you have such an important message to deliver, many messages. As I said, I, I really loved your book, and it's just so well-written that that <laughs> I I felt as I was reading it that I was right there with you as as you experienced everything that you've described about your life. And I think it would be helpful if you first told our audience in your own words about your life, especially leading up to attending college. I want to give everyone context for your life story. We need to get to know you better in order to understand what ultimately happened. So could you take us through, talk about your life preceding the Citadel? Well, growing up, you know, in an Italian close-knit family. It it was just a wonderful childhood. I didn't really understand and realize the the significance of who my father was when I was growing up. It was odd that everyone knew my father, that everyone wanted his autograph, that he was very popular. But as I grew older, you you understand that your father is special. I know everyone will say their fathers are special, but this was, you know, a a very unique situation for me and my brother and my sister. We we would talk about it. We'd say, wow, dad, you know, dad's really, everyone loves dad. He's, you know, he's just very popular. And then as we grew older, we, we we would be more involved in his life. For instance, I think you you read in my book where me and my brother, at the very young age, eight, seven, eight years old, would go to the Orange Bowl while my dad was playing during Saturday, during the practice, and we would have the Orange Bowl, the whole Orange Bowl to ourselves. I mean, it was like our erector set, right? We ran through all the stadiums up and down the stairs. 
and we'd go on the field, and I, I'd be holding the, I'd be holding the ball for Gary Ukrainian to kick. I'd be throwing the football back and forth at Mercury Forest, Paul <laughs> Warfield, all I mean, all legend, Zonka and Greasy. I mean, these guys were like our friends. So we recognized at a young age that our family was a little bit different than than other families. But my dad was a very humble man. My dad was always conscious of who he was, what he represented us, and how he raised us as children to appreciate the moment, to understand that you need to work for everything you have in your life, that nothing comes free. It's all about hard work determination, doing the, doing the right thing and getting the job done correctly. My parents grew up pretty, you know, not with a silver spoon in their mouth. My dad grew up picking tobacco as a young kid. His father ran a, ran a small bakery. My, my, my mom's parents uh, always worked. My, my grandfather sold beer. My grandmother worked at Westinghouse for 40 years, even during the Depression. So we had a very working class family. Of course, it wasn't until my dad was in high school where he was all Western Mass, went to Notre Dame for college. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was a very strange similarity between my father, my brother, and myself. But really, my goal, the same messaging that persisted through our whole life. When my dad was in Notre Dame, his coach told you, Nick, you're way too small to play pro football. You're not, you're not big enough. You're not fast enough. But, you know, what happened? My dad was drafted in the 13th round of the then fledgling AFL, right? It wasn't even the NFL. It was the, at the AFL by the Patriots, which was awesome for him. He grew up as a Massachusetts kid. He was playing for the for the then Boston Patriots. And, you know, long behold, when he was finally traded to the Dolphins, everything changed. But anyways, getting back to the point of your question, was that one week when my brother and I grew up in high school, we excelled, as you, as you mentioned. But it really... It was a challenge for me and my brother both to convince colleges that we were worth the scholarships. My brother had better grades, as you mentioned. I did struggle in school, along with other things during my high school time. But I was able to perform on the football field. That separated me from other kids and gave me a little bit of wiggle room to be able to be able to get a scholarship to the Citadel, and then my brother, and then that's what led me up to getting going to the Citadel. Yeah, I, I I enjoyed all of your very honest stories about your childhood. I I thought about the right word. I, I Adventurous just seemed right. It seemed like your whole childhood was an adventure. You were always on the move, you know, creating a little bit of, of good nature oh, trouble. Well, a lot of stupidity, but fun. <laughs> all in fun, Michael, was all in fun. Yeah. And you, I have images of you playing in what I, I, it sounded like some sort of a backyard canal 
and not worrying about the alligators in Florida. Yeah. It was a black. Maybe to give context to your viewers, you know, me and my friends, we were were pranksters. We were always looking to, to pull off some kind of caper, some kind of event that was funny. But yet a little bit of uh, off, you know, a little bit on the edge of right or wrong or legality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I go back to the time that me and my couple of my friends, we streaked to a all, all girls Catholic. I mean, it was classic to this day. It is like one of the most classic things that ever happened. And, and for friends of my around my age. And, and your poor mother, you, 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 she was not happy about some of this behavior. No, my mom wasn't that pleased about it. But my dad, you know, he's like, oh, come on, Terry, it's high school stuff, you know? Yeah. So it was, it was a lot of Miami. Miami at that time was just a fun town. You know, the dolphins kind of reigned supreme during the years that I grew up and just a lot of fun. Yeah, and your dad was part of the undefeated season, right? He was captain of the defense of the undefeated season. That's yep. correct. Yep, unbelievable. So, so let's now move into college. So you you ultimately decided to attend the Citadel. So tell us a little bit about about that experience. Well, again, getting back to my behavior in high school, there w- were a lot of colleges that I guess second second question by whether or not they want to take a chance on me because of some of my escapades. And my head coach really was not very helpful in attracting schools or giving me, you know, a blessing for schools to consider me. So I guess the school that cut, that came after me and got through the the gatekeeper was the Citadel. I guess he figured, well, this is the, the perfect place for Mark to go because it's almost like going to jail. So let me explain what the Citadel is for maybe people who don't know exactly what it is. Because quite frankly, when the Citadel came to recruit me, I never even heard of it. I honestly, I was honest, I never even heard of the Citadel. And they come in, they say, well, the Citadel's the premier military institute of South Carolina. And I said, military institute? And I said, well, I don't think that's me. I don't think that's probably the best environment for me to go because, you know, I don't think I'm military material. And believe it or not, the recruiters are like, oh, no, no, no. There's really, it's a military institution, but it's really not that strict. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the recruiters are a little bit misleading on exactly what you're going to face as, you know, a Citadel recruit. So anyways, I... Get recruited to the Citadel, right? I go on my recruiting trip, and we have a blast. I mean, we have such a good time. Charleston is probably one of my favorite cities in all of the U.S. 
We had so much fun. There was a bunch of recruits from all over the place. We're like, wow, man, this was a blast. When they brought it to the Citadel, they showed us like one room, which happened to be like the biggest room in the whole place. They're like, oh, there's no marching. There's no real rules. You just heard, I hear a football player, you get special treatment, blah, blah, blah. Man, when I finally went there and we walked into the barracks for the very first time, and then all of a sudden they turned on that switch and they lit us up like a, like a matchbook. Man, that place blew up. I never heard these these people yell and shout and get in line, pop in your chin, stand tall, do this, do that, push-ups here, run here, you know, jump here, go in here, go there. I mean, it was a nightmare for an entire year. I mean, let's put it this way. Boot camp for the Marines, like a Paris Island, I think it's like maybe eight weeks, something like that. Yeah. This was an entire year of torture. Yeah. You, I, I like the description of how you were required to eat, that there was a special way for you to eat and that you, you basically started to starve because you couldn't do it. That's right. You know, you're there, you're, you're having a meal. You have to sit on the first four inches of your chair. Your arms are locked at your side. Your chin is in like this. You, you're there sitting there and then you have to say, Sir, Mr. So-and-so, Cadet Private Bonacani requesting a drink, sir. And the guy would just ignore you. <laughs> so you're just sitting there and maybe finally after like with five minutes left to say, all right, take a bite. You got to pick up your fork, take a scoop, put it in your mouth, put the fork down, chew, swallow, then pick up the fork again, take a scoop. <laughs> Put it in your mouth. Put the pork down too. You know it was it was just rule after rule after rule, which made it challenging because you would always forget. You know, and during that process, they're saying, "Badakani, recite the cadet prayer." Badakani, what what's the fifth rule? What's the fifth maneuver of that rifle move? I mean, bam, 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 and physical and mental torture, and that, but that. You know, that is the premise of the school. Yeah. The idea is to break someone down to a point where you're you're at you at a point where you have to make a decision, right? And it's about critical thinking. You have the ability to to really multitask. you you have to absorb information, you have to reconcile that information in your brain and make a qualified, correct decision. And that's what makes a military man, mm-hmm. right? You have, to, you have to be able to be under pressure like that and, and make a qualified answer. And that's what it does. It, and, it, and, it, and it worked for me, and it continues to work for me. I, I still have that, that behavior where I am able to absorb a lot of information from a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. And and then you you sort it out in your brain and you make decisions and answers that are logically decided that that 
that form your answer and make your behavior move forward. It's, you know, it's a very difficult process, you know, but it's also, it was something that you share with your, with your brother, with your, with your classmates. You know, I, I was, I was there with, you know, like 500 other guys. They separate them into companies. I was in a company called Extru, and these guys are like my brothers today. Yep. I'm telling you, you know, eight every year, still 36 years later. Yeah. And even though I got, like you said, we'll talk about this, I'm sure. But even after my injury, you know, these guys never forgot me, you know. Well, I'm sure we'll get talking. We'll talk about we are that. definitely going to talk about that because that's an important part of your story. You know, the Citadel, I would recommend it for a lot of people. But, you know, I I was kicking, kicking and screaming when I went in there. But, you know, now when I look back, you know, it was an amazing experience. Right, well, I'm going to come back to your experience around the Citadel, but before we do that, we've got some other territory we've got to cover. And I want to now get into, into you playing football there and maybe speak about your experience playing football and take us right up to what was happening around uh, your neck getting sprained and ultimately what happened leading to the accident. Sure. So my initial experience uh, when I went there was as a freshman, not only as a you know military cadet, as a football player, you're you're on the bottom of the totem pole, right? You're a freshman, you don't know the you don't know the plays, you don't know the the defensive scheme, you don't even know what defense they're running. So you have to start all over. I ran I ran a four four in, in high school. Four down line and a four linebackers. When I went to the center pretty fast. Yeah, when I when I went to the Citadel, they ran a four three, a completely different um, system, you know. And I played middle linebacker, but it was strange. So right before I went to the Citadel, I have to tell this story because it's very strange. I had and like oh, two weeks before the Citadel, I lost like almost 15, 20 pounds. So when I went to the Citadel, I was like one hundred eighty five pounds. Mm-hmm. They must. They must have thought, "What the hell did that in your shirt, man?" This guy's like skin and bones. So when I first went there, I had to really pack on a lot of weight really quick. And then, like I told you, they're not letting you eat anyway, so I was really at a disadvantage. But so right from the start, when we went through pre, you know, pre practice, until we finally got in the pads, these these coaches. I think we're like, the guy was like, are you sure you want to play middle linebacker? And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to play. He's like, you want to play weak, weak side linebacker? And I'm like, no, middle linebacker. I'd like to be right in the middle of the action. And the guy was like, all right. So, like, when I first got on the field, I think I was the fourth, fourth team linebacker, fourth team. And I had three guys in front of me. And uh, so they finally started to do scrimmages. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to let it go, man. I'm going to let them loose. And I did. And I and I destroyed their, their scrimmages. 
at the first two days of scrimmage, I was drilling the quarterback. I was killing the running back behind the line. I was blitzing whenever I wanted to. I was just, you know, I was just being an assassin. So my sense is that you were a a lot like your dad in in this respect and that people might have underestimated him at some point based on his size, but that was a mistake. And it sounds like it was a big mistake for anyone to underestimate you as well, Mark. So, right. So after that first week, I went from the fourth team to second team. Mm -hmm. They recognized it right away. And the funniest thing was my roommate uh, was a uh, center. And we, w- we would go at it every day in practice. And he's like, man, he's like, you surprised me twice. When I first saw you, I was like, damn, that's Bonnet County's kid. After a couple of days of practice, he's like, wow, that's Bonnet County's kid. So, yeah, you know, at first... You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover. Anyways, after a couple of weeks, I think everybody recognized that I was kind of a force to be reckoned with. And you ultimately went to the coach and said, hey, isn't it time for me to be the starter? So my freshman year, I, it was a learning, learning curve for me. Mm-hmm. I was understanding that. And I, I was only one of two, I think two or three freshman to make the traveling team and I wasn't the starter my freshman year but I I did travel I did letter and so it set the stage for my sophomore year so the beginning of uh, my sophomore year and making it through the first year was a, a miracle in itself but getting to my sophomore year there was a lot less stress because you're only, as a freshman, you're the one that's really under a lot of pressure. So as a sophomore, I was able to focus more on football. And so what, almost midway through the season, I was able to get the starting job. And that's right. I talked to my coach and I said, listen, I love my teammate, but I think the person who practices better is the one who should be starting. And believe it or not, the guy, right when I had said that, the guy in front of me heard it to me. Mm-hmm. And he was out, and that's when I that's when I jumped in there. And that's when I, I was able to get my first start. And so the game that my teammate hurt his leg, hurt his knee, was a game against Marshall, Marshall University. And he hurt his knee, and I went in there. And uh, we finished the, I finished the game. We lost that game. But... So after that, I'm like, wow, I'm going to be the starter the next week. And the next day, I was in the training room, and I just happened to go in the equipment room. And, you know, I looked around, and I opened a box for some reason. And I see this this neck roll. And for those who don't know, a neck roll, they don't really use it a lot nowadays. It's like a horseshoe that goes around your neck, the shoulder pads. And it pretty much keeps the neck from going back too far, being stabilizing a little bit. And I'd always use a neck wall my entire life. And, you know, I looked at it and 
this is one of the areas of my book that I that I talk about, and these are decisions I would make in life. Our life is full of decisions. We make hundreds of decisions a day, and a lot of times we don't realize which decision is going to make the biggest impact. And I made a decision that I really feel that ultimately changed my life. I looked at this neck roll that had a little cool, like round extension piece on the back. And I looked at, and I thought to myself, wow, this thing looks really cool. The other neck roll I had was basically just a towel wrapped, you know, wrapped in tissue, not tissue, but like a terry cloth kind of thing. So I, I, I took off my neck roll that I used that it worked perfectly fine to put on this other neck roll that I did because it looked cool. And, and that's, that was me. You know, that, that was a difference between me, my brother, and my dad. My dad and my brother could care less about how they looked on the football field. But that was me. Not only did I want to play good, I wanted to look good doing it. And I changed that neck roll and I went out to practice. And it was a pass play. And as soon as the guy caught the ball, I went to tackle him. I had what's called a stinger. This is a burning sensation. Your your arm goes numb and and it, it hurts like hell. But it, it only lasts like maybe a minute and it goes away. But the problem was with me specifically is once you get a stinger, then the 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 probability of having another one when you make another tackle is greatly increased. At least that was for me. So I didn't think much of it. I changed. I did change the neck roll back to the other one. I said, God damn it! Why did I change this neck roll? You know. So whatever, practice, practice. But I remember the first game that I was a start. I was sitting outside with a friend of mine who's against against VMI, Virginia, Virginia Military. I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden I look up, and there's my dad. He didn't call me. He didn't tell me. He just showed up unannounced to my first college start. Yeah. Get him, what that meant to me. I can. And, you know, and, and what you, we, we haven't had time for you to go through all the details, but one thing I learned is that your dad was always supportive, of course, of you playing football, but he also refrained from being your coach and he wanted you to learn your own lessons. And uh, so I can imagine that was a very special experience when he showed up. Right. So fast forwarding, I went, you know, played the game and I, and, I, and already when I made tackles, I felt my neck, you know, I, I, I heard it, heard it again and again. During, during that week, I was in the training room a couple times a day. The next game, we played like a, a game. I think it was Davidson at home. That's where my mom and dad and my sister came to visit. I had a, I had an incredible game. I don't know how many tackles I had. But after the game, I remember going to dinner. My neck was so stiff that my dad was like, you better get an x-ray, check out your neck. He was concerned. Then I played the game at the University of Tennessee. And that's when I really, really heard it. I mean, that's, that's the week where you, where you, where you mentioned that I was the, the, 
the Southern Conference Player of the Week. Interception, a fumble recovery, like over 12, 13 tackles, an interception. And my neck kept getting worse every game, every game. And I was in the training room. But during that week, my coach came up to me and said, do you think you can play? Because I didn't practice that whole next week. I'm like, coach, I don't know if I could play. But there I was, a 19-year-old kid, Nick Bonacati's son. I'd just become a starter yep. two weeks before. Do you think there was anything in the world that was going to drag me off that field? I can, I can only imagine. In retrospect, should the doctor or the trainer or somebody or the coach said, Mark, look, you're, you're too hurt. But I played the game and then. But they, you know, they created this contraption for you, right? To, to make sure that you could play. So I went to the training room and I told the trainer, I said, you know, it really hurts when my neck goes backwards. So let's, you know, let's, let's do something to prevent it from going backwards. So they made this huge, rigid collar. I mean, a very hard, hard record collar that was really high, prevented my neck from going back. And then on top of that, they put a strap from my, from my, from my face mask to my shoulder pads. So yeah, it prevented my neck from going back. But then, I mean, it actually pulled my neck forward. And so I was in such a, a bad prone position to begin with. And then, you know, life, life comes down to moments, right? I remember before the game, they were saying, look, there's, there's this running back that is possibly going to go pro. His name was Herman Jacobs. Mm-hmm. And the San Francisco 49ers are at the game scouting it. And I was thinking to myself, whoa, San Francisco 49ers. Well, maybe I should knock him on his ass a few times. Instead of looking at him, they'll be looking at me. Mm-hmm. So I was excited. The second series, they got the ball. They hand it off. And I got to tell you, the, the, the center blocked me. And I, and I missed the tackle. Herman ran for nine yards on first down. Second down, they tried to hand it right up the middle, almost the same exact play. But this time I got right off the block and I drilled them right in the hole. No game. So here we are, third and one, Michael. Football players understand. I mean, this is, this is, these are, these are plays that really make differences in games. Third and one. We stop them. They got a pun. You know, they get the first down, they keep going. And at that moment, they pitch the ball to Herman. I'm running to my left. He's going right. One of my teammates dives at his legs, flips him up in the air. He is literally cartwheeling through the air. The first down is there. You know, I know it's close. He's reaching. He's diving. And I dive with all my might for a, for a spot. And all of a sudden, boom, we hit. Another one of my teammates hits. And next thing I know, I'm on my side. And 
it's like I have the wind knocked out of me. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing I, I thought of. And then I'm laying there and all of a sudden I have this tingling all over my body and, and I'm laying on my side and I see, you know, these bodies all over me, right? That's how it is. Football, big tackle. And I'm looking down and I'm looking and I see the hand and I follow the arm to the elbow. And then I realized that it was my arm. Wow. And it was just there and I couldn't move it. And right there, I knew that I was paralyzed. Wow. It's unbelievable. And I've replayed it myself many times. I went and watched it. I watched the video as well, which you know is out there on the internet. So you, you're paralyzed and you're obviously carted off to the hospital and, and, and it's bad. And I understand that the first thing from your book that the doctors told you was, and I'm reading now, you are paralyzed. You might not be able to ever breathe on your own without the assistance of a respirator and you'll never walk again. The odds were not good for you, but you persevered. And, and maybe you could speak a little bit about the experience being in the hospital, your parents, just everything you experienced in, in, in you know, just going through this, this period, trying to save your life. It was devastating. Like, oh, you know, getting into the emergency room and everybody just running here, running there. They immediately animated me, you know, telling you that you're going to be paralyzed the rest of your life that you may never breathe again on your own. You know, your life is shattered. Your world is shattered. Did you understand and, that you were you could potentially die or were you just thinking about being paralyzed? They didn't, they didn't tell me how to die, but they told my parents that, you know, they they, they talk about the phone. These, these are phone calls that every parent wishes they never get. The all that says, you know, Nick, Mr. Bonacani, this is doctor. Your son is dislocated and that can be quadriplegic the rest of his life. Just imagine my father and his son following in his footsteps, playing a game that gave the Bonacani so much and then took away everything. From what I understand, my, my mom you know, was wondering where my dad was because they were at a family friends. And she went in there and my dad was sitting on the floor, you know, and my mom, when she, my mom found out, she said, you know, where well, there's life, there's hope. My mom was really the backbone of the family. My dad was destroyed. Although she wrote in, 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 in one thing I should say about your book is that while you are, of course, the primary author, you invited your family members to write, you know, small chapters as well. And so we get to hear your story, not only in your voice, but also in theirs. And one of the things that I read that your, your mother, your mother said, do I pray for Mark to live or do I pray for him to die? And how does that make you feel to hear that? She just, you know, she didn't know what was best for you. Yeah, it breaks my heart to think about her having to make that thought. Yeah. You know, for her to have to come in her mind and think, well, my gosh, I pray for, pray for my son to live or die. And, you know, everyone was shattered. Everyone was shattered. But, you know, there, 
there was a glimpse, you know, not, 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 it was just about hope. We tried to find my dad, my parents were by my side within hours, right? They, they found them. They flew to Johnson, Tennessee. My dad was there and he, he makes this bold, this, this bold commitment. He, he looked in my eyes and he saw that I had tubes in my nose and throat. But he saw dad help me. And for the first time in his life, my dad felt hopeless. But he looked in my eyes and said, Mark, I promise that I will do everything and anything possible to help you and to, to, try to get you back on your feet again. And who knew what that promise would turn into? And yeah, the first step was trying to understand the best place for me to go mm -hmm. because I was injured at Johnson city, Tennessee. God bless them, but it just was not a trauma one hospital. Yeah. And they kept searching around the whole U S around the world. And strangely enough. The name that kept coming up was a guy named Dr. Bard Green. Mm -hmm. And we didn't know, but it was right in our backyard at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital System. And within days, I was at Jackson under the care of Bart Green. And literally, my life, my life began to change. Barth is and was just a dynamic person. He is. He just, his energy, he is excitement, he is optimistic. And it, it wasn't about surviving, it was about thriving. It was, all right, we, you know, Nick and Terry and Mark, you been dealt a bad hand. But just because you're paralyzed, you could still have a productive, functional, and rewarding life. But the number one goal was I have to get off the rest. The difference of living a life on a respirator and off a respirator is dramatic. So that was the number one goal of and you and you said in your book also that it, it actually was a question also of lifespan i think you said in your book that if you don't get off the respirator that the life expectancy is probably about 10 years or at least it was when you were saying that yeah and that you pointed out that that was christopher reeve right christopher reeve lived 10 years yeah because living on a respirator encompasses a lot of complications. Yes. Yeah. And you talk about the experience of getting off the respirator and that is, that was horrifying to read that. I mean, the way I read that is you a bit, you, you had to wean yourself off and it was basically, we're going to do this the hard way every day. And I forget how many breaths you said that you normally take, but it was basically weaning it down so that you were going to basically suffocate unless you could force yourself to breathe. That, you know, was, and I'm, I'm not sure if it's still it, but that was the way you went on for respirator. And 
it was by far the most difficult thing I ever had to do in my life. Now we're talking about worse than the Citadel, you know, or worse growing up in a Polish household, the Polish Italian, all the, all the two a day practices, all the running and, you know, hard exercise that I ever had to do. It paled in comparison to, to literally start, let's just say you start at 10 breaths a minute from just getting down to five with the four at one point getting four breaths a minute. Just think about that for people who are listening, getting a breath every 15 seconds. And in between you're just, you're gasping. But one day when the respiratory therapist came in, they, they checked the, the, the volume of the, of the machine, right? And they get this like spirometer there and they were testing it and they put and at the point I had a tracheotomy mm-hmm. and they put the thing on the tracheotomy and I, you know, I try to take a breath or whatever, which I've been doing for months with nothing. Then also boom, I, I saw the meter actually move for the first time. And yeah, yeah, you couldn't understand how excited I was about and it was the inflammation. It was the inflammation around my, my injury that dissipated enough where the frantic nerve was able to turn on. It was a miracle. It was close to a miracle. Seven months later, though. Seven months Thank later. You. Yeah. I, I can, I, you know, you talk about the experience of watching the clock and just waiting for when your next breath was going to be. Oh, yeah. The bench. Take the clock away. And then I was like counting in my head one, two, three. It was torture. It was torture. Believe me, right now, if I go into a room with ventilators, I start hyperventilating. I, you know, my body never forgot what that sound is like. And um, about five years ago, I had a medical episode where I was actually back on the respirator for about a month, which was like a flashback, not a mere flashback. Mark, after I did my introduction and you uh, and I greeted you, uh, you said you you pointed out that that your your life has really been a team effort. That there have been many people there to support you, and you've of course talked about your family. You talked about Doctor Green, and we can talk more about him as well, especially as we get into what you're doing now. Another person. That, that you might want to, to acknowledge as your nurse, Jim? Sure. So when I first left the ICU, I moved to um, a private room, which was like a step-down unit, but uh, a single room right, right near the ICU. And they made me there because then they realized, look, this is... He's not going to get off the respirator while right away. It's going to take time. And so they, they, I started getting private duty care. And they, the first, one of the first guys they brought in was a guy named Jim, Jim Escoto. And at first, Jim and I, we really didn't get along very good. He was, he was very strict. You know, he was, he was, 
They were getting me up eight o'clock in the morning and putting me through this vigorous, you know, ventilator waiting process, which, which was, which was terrible. This was obviously the darkest days of my life. I went from 220 pounds to about 120 pounds in six months. Wow. You know, they, I was depressed. I didn't want to see people, but every day they would like get me out of bed. I'd ass out like every time. And, and I was just like, Jerry, I don't want to do this. Leave me alone. You're a jerk. Get out of my room. And you know, the guy just would, would, he wouldn't relent. He was a former, he was in the army, former. Mm -hmm. And he, he was kind of a crazy guy. He was a freedom fighter with this, you know, with the Sandinistas down in Nicaragua. So he was a little bit crazy. Like I was, he also was a diver like I was. So there was a lot of things that we had in common. And while I hated him at first, the the more that we were together, the more that we that we would bond. And I literally give a lot of the credit of getting off the respirator to Jim's persistence and and making me not quit and, you know to endure the waiting process to finally get off the respirator. And we were we finally went to rehab, which is a huge step. Yeah, when you get the hospital, they live the hospital, they move to rehab. That's like, all right, we're on our way home. We're on our way to independence. You know, we've graduated from school, and now, now it's time to start. Let, let's figure this out together, right? Yeah. And we're weeks away. I mean, maybe a week away from from being discharged from rehab to go home. We had just come back from New York. My first trip out of the hospital was to New York where we would celebrate our first event for our charity. We'll get that up. Right. Anyways, so one night I left rehab just for the night and I went to a reggae concert. Like the first concert that I went to after my injury, we had a blast. We had such a good time. I come home. And my nurse, my nurse is crying. I'm like, what happened? She's like, oh, nothing, nothing. I didn't think twice about it. And then all of a sudden, like seven o'clock in the morning, Dr. Green wakes me up and he says, Mark, Jim has been killed. And... Everything started to spin. And and I just, I couldn't absorb what he was saying. It it was such a devastating blow. The news that, you know, this guy that helped save my life was gone. It it rattled me to my soul. And, you know, who who was Jim? You know, were... But was he, was he an angel? Was he an angel that God sent to me for this moment in my life that I needed someone like him? Yeah. 
And that's actually the title of that chapter that you wrote about him. Yeah, because like I said, he was he was he was kind of crazy. He 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 wrote he drove a he drove a Harley Davidson. Hmm. He wore like a Nazi helmet or a helmet. And that's right. I the title of the, the chapter was the an angel an angel drives a Harley. So um the guy I've saved my life, and to this day, I talk to his son, and I tell him every time I see him, I say, your dad saved my life, and it's one of the reasons I'm here today. So, yeah. Take take a, a moment. Let's so talk about positive things, Michael. Yeah, yeah, we're going to talk about some positive things. But I again, your story is so compelling, and people have to, people have to hear it. People have to I, understand the context. So you, you said earlier that you, you talked about decisions and that we make hundreds of decisions every day. You wrote, only in time do we come to understand the significance of one decision or another. As I've said, it's not just the choices we make, but it's the ones we fail to make as well. So what do you mean by that? Well, we, as we go through our day, right, we make decisions, but a lot of times we don't make decisions. We make as many decisions as we don't make decisions. As we as we go through life, consequences occur based on based on those decisions, right? So maybe you know you you have a project that you want to pursue and you decide to do that. But what about what about if you if you don't decide to do it? Mm-hmm. Then that also has consequences. So for every reaction, there's a reaction. That's, yeah. That's kind of the, I guess, the premise behind decision, you know, but by decision making. And, I, you know, I literally don't believe that people take the time to make decisions. People are very, you know, they make rash decisions all the time. And I still do that. I still, I still do not take the time to, you know, contemplate the, the short and the long-term consequences of a decision. Yeah. I, I could name multiple decisions in my life that, that have really changed my life. And I think everyone, if they, if they kind of introspect on their life, they'll, they'll realize there's a lot of things that they did at the time. They're like, Oh, I didn't, think that was going to be such a big deal but now it's huge so one of the one of the uh, the the most emotional parts of your book for me was when you reconciled with the citadel now we haven't talked about why there is any need for reconciliation so i want to touch on that i'm going to read you a, a quote from your book when you were talking about the the device that your trainer had come up with Here's what you said. The, the immobility caused by the contraption made it impossible for me to lift my head so that I wasn't able to look up, something I would have to do to read plays, look for oncoming blockers, cover players, and make tackles. It made me completely vulnerable, to say the least. At the time, I weighed my skepticism against the alternative plan, pain. Weeks later, I was told that when my teammate Scott Thompson saw the contraption, he said, Mark's going to break his freaking neck. But the school ultimately 
didn't take any responsibility for what happened to you. And there's something that you say over and over that the Citadels, one of their philosophies is no man is left behind. And you, your dad, your family felt that they left you behind. So can you speak a little bit about what happened with the Citadel? You ultimately sued them and you ultimately reconciled. Tell us the story. Yeah, that was extremely difficult because you come to love the school, even though it was an ex- an extreme experience. And I was really ambivalent about whether or not I wanted to pursue a lawsuit. But when you when you step back and you think about it, I mean, they had every opportunity to step between me and the field. The doctor should have known better. The trainer should have known better. Someone should have known better than to let a 19-year-old make a decision of whether or not to go on the football field with an neck. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, an injured ankle or a knee. We're talking about the possibility of having a catastrophic. So, right, they, they did not do what their job is supposedly supposed to do is to protect the football player. So after my injury, you know, my family reached out to the Citadel and they not only did not come forward to help, they refused to return phone calls. They refused to, you know, take any, you know, responsibility for any of the of the actions leading up to my injury. And at some point, I remember my father coming up to me and saying, Mark, just step back and think about everything that you went through. The injury, the weeks in the training room, progressively getting worse over and over again. Building this contraption that no one's ever even heard about, an enormous collar and a strap, so you're not able to lift your head. You're like a torpedo in there. And you're such a prone for injury that, 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 that is, you know, that, that's something that, you know, that there, there's liability there, right? That's just mismanagement. That's just, you know, just not good care. So at that point, my, my family and I, decided to pursue a lawsuit against the Citadel, the trainer, and the doctor. And you went through that whole process. You did get a recovery against the Citadel, but it wasn't until years later that you actually, I mean, you just spoke earlier about about F Troop and about how you're so close with all these guys all these years later, but there was a time in between when you and the Citadel were not talking to each other and what happened? Yeah, absolutely. Well, when we sued them, of course, all hell broke loose, of course, went up to there and had to do all that. But, you know, I didn't have, I don't have an issue with my teammates or my classmates. Yeah. It was the administration, you know, and all that. And I was hurt. I felt hurt emotionally. Right. And so for many, many years, it was just, you know, there was, there was just adverse 
feelings back and forth of Kurt, of course. And about almost 20 years later, one of my teammates was at my house and we were just, you know, kicking around doing nothing. I, I, evidently, he went, I called and he saw that I still had a Citadel, like a uh, military cap in my closet. And he walked out and he's like, you still have a Citadel in that closet? I'm like, you know, it, it was part of my life. You know, it was part of my life. And then he said, would you ever consider making amends with the Citadel? And I, and I never thought, I've thought about it. And I said, well, I don't know. Let me think about that. For a few days, I thought about it. And, you know, I was like, you know, what, what, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to, you're going to live, you know, with that hanging on you, a negative, you know, thing hanging around and, you know, just always there, ever present. And so I, I said, look, you know, I, I don't know, maybe, but I said, there, there's no way that I'm going to reach out to them to make amends. You know, if they want to come out and reach out to me and, and, and talk about reconciliation, they want to, you know, like officially invite me there and all that, you know, because 20 years, not only did they like to serve, but no contact, no, no, nothing, yeah. you know, look, things are, are a lot different now, but back then you're thinking, look, isn't this school about honor? Isn't this about, you know, a brotherhood, you know, about, as you say, isn't the correlation of a football player similar to someone who goes fight a war? And when someone goes down, do you leave them there? No, you carry them back. You, you, you keep them, you, you protect them. You're, you, you, you're there. You, you, you pledge to be with them forever. And th that's not what happened. Yeah. And so, but, you know, I opened the, the door to discussion and I told my teammate, well, He's like, well, maybe I should talk to the head coach or, or, the, or the athletic director. I said, I said, Joel, you want to make this happen? You have to go to the top. You have to talk to the president of the college or the, the, or the board of visitors. And, you know, I said, but you're on your own. I'm not, you know, I'm not. I'm not helping you. And sure enough, on his own, he reached out to the then the president of the Sentinel. His name was General Poole. And, um, you know, the next day I know, I get a letter in the mail from the, from the general. And he says, you know, we'd like to invite you to the school. And, you know, I went. I went. And, and I met, we met at one of the, one of the rooms and I'll never forget, I go in the room and 
there's a gentleman, Billy Jenkinson, who was then the chairman of the board of visitors. And he's like, hello, Mark. My name is Billy Jenkinson. Welcome home. Wow. And, you know, it, it, it took every bit of me to keep the tears from, from flowing. I can imagine. Welcome home. And I, it, it, it was a moment that those moments that you don't forget. And, and they presented you with a, with a school ring, which I understand was the first time ever for a non-graduate. Yeah, but that, that came a little bit later. But yes. But still pretty, you know, it's... it's. Yeah, at first they came to tell me they're going to retire my jersey, mm-hmm. which was fantastic. And that, and that was... That was kind of the beginning. And then my my teammates were like, We we want you to get the rank. Yeah. And at first that they they weren't gonna give it to me. But it took one of my teammates to go and present to the board of visitors. And from what I understand, man, what he had said, they actually voted to give me the rank. It was Yeah. I mean and they when they when I went back there for the it was during a football game, but before the game, they, we had, a, we had a kind of a ceremony just to welcome everybody. And sure enough, my same teammate and friend, he started reading. No one told me about it. I think I thought about it. I said, nah, nah, I can't happen. And sure enough, he presented me the ring and, you know, I see my teammates around and so I could barely talk and, and they put their ring on. There's a flyover. Okay. There's a flyover. And I look up and then I see all my classmates from F true. And I, I just lost it. it. You know, it, it, it comes back full circle. People who really love you, love you no matter what, you know, these guys never forgot me. My teammates never forgot me, and um, that's all that matters. And you know, the Citadel—they recognize, they recognize me. You know, they—they they realized, you know, they made a mistake. They made a mistake, and you know, life, my, my, life, life goes on. Yeah. You have to, you have to sometimes do things that. That hurt a little bit at first, right? But it it was it was a great decision for me. Now, getting my dad there was was a different story. At first, he was like, "There's no way in hell I'm going to the Citadel. I don't care." You know, my dad was furious. My dad was so furious about the way they. Not only about how they want the contraption, everything they did, you know, but after the injury and how they kind of left me and and didn't support me, that that irritated my dad more. But I think over time, as as the event approached, you know, I think my mom talked to him, a few other people talked to him, and by the end, man, my whole family was there. 
including my dad. It made it, it made it a special moment. Mark, I want to ask you one more football related question. And then I, want, I really want to get into the Miami project. Yeah. Okay. And, and so, you know, again, there's so much, I, I was marking up your book with, with all these quotes that I, I could talk to you about all day, but in your book, you said that you would not allow your own son to play football. Mm-hmm. And in one haunting image I have from your book came, and there are many, came from this passage. You said, I was told that my dad tried to pry off his Super Bowl ring. As he saw his youngest child struggling to survive, my dad felt betrayed. Where are you today on the game of football? I love football. I love the game of football. I, I hold no ill will to the game. I'm a huge Dolphin fan. I'm a huge Hurricane fan, being an alum and a board of trustee. I'm tuned in every weekend, and I just, I love the game. I, you know, some I do, I do sometimes take, woo, I look like a bad hit, or when someone goes down, you know, I'm always checking to see what they knocked out, you know, was there an injury? I've seen a couple injuries along the way that are very difficult. So, you know, I remember I Chucky Mullins from Ole Miss. I was paralyzed. Mike Utley, he was a former Detroit Lion. Obviously, Daryl Stingley. Daryl Stingley, yeah. Early. So, yes. But no, the game, I love the game. Yeah, right. If I, had, I, if I did have a child or if I do ever have a child, I, I would not let him play. Well, for, and, and. But there's also other reasons. And, you know, I, I don't feel that children at a young age should play contact football. I, I do believe in CTE. Mm-hmm. I do believe that I have early onset CTE. I do feel it. And I feel that until until kids get to high school, there should not be contact. The, the brain, the brain is that important early development at that time. And and numerous repetitious contact with the head, I, I think over time is devastating. So 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 now you, as I said in my introduction, you are the president of the Miami Project to Cure Paralysis. So tell us about the Miami Project and the Bonaconte Fund to Cure Paralysis. Okay. So the Miami Project. When I was about two two months into my injury, as you can imagine, my dad was just devastated. He he was depressed. You know, my dad is not a hospital guy. You know, it's hard for my dad to come to the hospital every day. After a few weeks, they basically sent him back to Connecticut to U.S. Tobacco, where he was working. And, you know, one day my doctor, Barth Green, walked in the room with, with my dad and said, said, listen, I want to talk to you guys about this vision that I had. I really believe that science can do more than build a better wheelchair. If we recruit some of the best scientists in the world and focus them on a multidisciplinary approach to studying the brain and the spinal cord, 
and neural repair, we have the ability to, to repair the nervous system and with the ultimate goal of curing paralysis and getting people back on their feet again. And, you know, something Dr. Green had been thinking about for a long time. Can imagine his job as a neurosurgeon, right? Every day having to tell a loved one that they're going to be paralyzed, that they'll never walk again. He he was just fed up at having having to say that to all of his patients. So when he laid that out, you know, I never, you know, I saw my dad change right away. You know, it, it was one of those things that my dad gave a challenge. My dad needed something he could sink his teeth in, something that that he would be able to 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 rise up to meet a challenge, and it was it was buy in a hundred percent by us. Let's let's talk about projects that have changed the world, right? Talk about the Manhattan Project, right? Let's split the atom. We talk about the Moonshot Project. The guy, the man on the moon for the United States ahead of everybody else. And after those two incredible American success stories, the Miami Project was born. And that's what that's how it began. And again, me and my father and Bart decided that day that we would dedicate our lives to raising money raising awareness to recruit the best scientists in the world to help find a cure for paralysis. And literally, that's that's what we've done. Over 36 years, it's amazing to be able to say that, but we've raised over $500 million. Wow. We have over 200, 250 scientists, like 25 principal investigators studying many different aspects of neuroscience to help cure paralysis. We, we specialize in, as I said, repairing the nervous system. And that's what it's about. How do we, how do we either change the environment within the spinal cord or what can we do to, to, Manipulate the system in order for the central nervous system to regenerate. Because right now it doesn't. When you have an injury in the brain or the spinal cord, it does not repair itself. So we have to find strategies in order to repair the spinal cord. And we do that with basic science and clinical science. Many, many different approaches. And and that's what the Miami Project was about. But we needed to find a way to raise money. And that's why the Bonacani Fund was created. As the fundraising arm for the Miami Project. And through the Bonacani Fund, we have thrown many, many events, including one called the Great Sports Legends Dinner. Mm-hmm which is going to be on his 36th year this year, where we honor some of the greatest sports legends of all time. 
I mean, everyone from Muhammad Ali, Jack Nicholas, Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, you name it. We've honored some of the greatest sports legends of all times. And we're going to be doing it again this year. What we're excited about is last two years, we had to do it uh, virtually because of the pandemic. But this year, we're going to be in person at the Marriott Marquis on October 24th. If you're around, Michael, I'm sure that we can get the colony group in there. It's you guys going and Mark, I would love to. I, I, I'm not kidding. And I'm not just saying that. I would love to be part of this. Yes, absolutely. Well, you can be my guest. You're never going to forget it. You're going to be there every year after this. So besides your great sports legends dinner, like let's put it this, let's put this, I'll give you a perfect example. About 20 years ago, we, we honored Jack Nicholas at the great sports legends dinner. We were trying to honor Jack for 15 years before that, right? Every year, Jack, come on, Jack, Jack, Jack. But finally, he agreed to let us honor him. And when he got on stage, we we showed a nice video, and they go up and say a few words. And he said, Nick and Mark, had I known what this event was all about, had I known, I would have been here years ago. What what you guys have done and what you guys have created is magnificent. That I that you I'm all in with you guys. Whatever you need. And from that moment on, Jack and Barbara Nicholas have hosted a private golf tournament for the Botna County Fund. Wow. As a matter of fact, this coming weekend, April twenty fourth and twenty fifth. We we're doing a a golf tournament at the Bears Club in Jupiter, Florida, for the Botticotti Fund. It's it's eighteen foursomes with celebrities and a credible dinner and a, you know day at the Bears Club. Jack and Barbara there. Jack actually plays a little bit, so it's 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 amazing. It's amazing. The, the support that we've been able to get across the board. I'm talking about from every walk of life, from from entertainment to sports to business. From presidents, U.S. presidents. I, I've seen all the people that have supported you. We, you know, we we're fortunate because in 1992, when we launched the Bonner County Fund, we created a board of directors of who's to who's on talent. We had some of the most powerful people in the U.S. for join this board. I mean, we had Phil, you know, Gloria Stefan. We had, you know, Don Keogh, who was the president of Coca-Cola. Robert Wright, who was the president of NBC at the time. I mean, real people, a lot of investment banks, a venture capitalist. I mean, this was an amazing board, and we still have the board of directors, which are extremely active for the Bonnet County Fund. So we're, we're, we're very, very fortunate to have the incredible support of our board of directors. Uh, University of Miami, as I said, I'm a board of trustee, and um, they've been incredibly supportive. President Frank, 
the University of Miami and, and are incredible donors. So, yeah. Well, it, it sounds like what, what the Miami Project and the Bonaconte Fund has done or have done is is just create hope where there wasn't. And I read in the book about you know, when when you when when Barth Green and your dad were first talking about founding this. Barth Green was saying that there's nothing, and you have a great quote in your book. You say, "I challenge anybody to pick any disease, then start from zero, and in 30 years produce the breakthroughs we have experienced." The Miami Project has changed the global scientific community's attitude towards paralysis research. I mean, wow, you, you know. <laughs> You, you, this is the premier institution now for paralysis research. And it's beyond that, Michael, because the Miami Project, as, as I tried to alliterate before, is about repairing the nervous system. Think about that. The brain and the spinal cord, the nervous system, it is not just paralysis. It's stroke. It's Alzheimer's. It's Parkinson's. It's MS, it's other de- forms of dementia. And that's why the University of Miami is taking an accelerated approach of, of expanding the Miami Project into a neuroscience mecca. Because if you can repair the brain, if you can, if you can somehow get the nervous system to repair itself, you are going to impact tens of millions of people. Spinal cord injury affects about a half a million to a million people in the United States. There's about 10 to 12,000 new injuries every year. And that's why it's always challenging raising money because the, the footprint for paralysis is not very large. But the neuroscience, a footprint is enormous. And, you know, what I want to do is I would like to raise about a half a billion dollars more from the government to talk about what we call the incurables. Mm-hmm. These are the incurable diseases that have made no major traction in the last 50 years. Yeah. When's the last time you read a breakthrough about MS? I mean, these are incurable diseases. And until the government steps up and spends a half a, half a billion dollars or a billion dollars on this, then it's going to take another 50 years for something to happen. I mean, for example, cancer research. And I'm not taking anything away from cancer because it affects tens of millions of people. And that's why it has the funding that it does. You can see that the president just launched an initiative to raise, I don't know, is it billions or hundreds of millions of dollars to cure cancer? I think it was a cancer initiative. They need to do the same thing for the incurables because you think about it, cancer is also just as impactful. Think about all the money that it costs to care 
for people and also with people with neurological diseases. Sure. You know, the, the government has got to be more proactive. I'm so glad that the first step, and I think this is probably extremely going to be extremely helpful for us. Let's see how the cancer initiative works. Right. Let's hope over the next 10 years or so, the cancer initiative makes dramatic, you know, results, improvement. Mm -hmm. Let's cure cancer for everybody. God knows, you know, how many people have suffered with cancer. My, my fiance had stage three colon cancer. And thank God, with the grace of God, University of Miami, Sylvester Center, cured her. And she's over five years post-cancer post diagnosis. Glad to hear that. Oh, it hits home to me. And it's extremely important. But let's, let's hope that that initiative works. But let's, let's open it up beyond cancer. Right? Let's open it up to the neuroscience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's 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 go to that and and in and understand the extent of your of your hope around finding a cure. You remarked that parts of your day that the, the the parts of your day that are most similar to what what you call average people experience are when you wake up and go to sleep. You've been upfront about the fact that it takes you hours to get ready for each day. And as for going to sleep, you say Quote, one of the best things about going to sleep is that in my dreams, I walk, end quote. Will your dreams come true one day, Mark? Well, the older I get, the, you know, the more creeps my mind that maybe, maybe there's a chance that I may never walk again. But, you know, me and my father had this discussion before he passed away. And I said, Dad, you know, I I always wanted to get on my feet and walk, you know, for me and for you because of everything that you you did to help me. And and we both looked at each other and said, you know what? I may I might never walk again, but somebody will because of the work that that we've done. And Barth Green has done, and all the scientists and all of our donors and our this whole movement behind the project that people are going to walk. And honestly, people are walking right now. People continue to ask me, Mark, when are you going to find a cure? And honestly, I can say, Michael, some we already have. Mm -hmm. People who were once paralyzed are now walking out of the hospital. We have a therapy called hypothermia therapy, cool people down immediately after injury. We have this technology that rapidly cools the patient down to even two or three or four degrees. And by doing that, it, it decreases the inflammation around their injury. And if you decrease the inflammation around the injury, the cells in their nerves survive. And the possibility and the probability of 
having function come back dramatically increases. We're in a multi-center trial now, and we're confident that this is going to be a protocol in all emergency rooms and hospitals all around the world mm -hmm. to pull people down after injury. And not even, not even just spinal cord injury, also brain injury and stroke. You know, this is what is used at, at cardiovascular events like heart attacks and cardiovascular surgery. They pull the heart down. I do know that. Pull the body down. And this is going to go across the board. Think about the technology of people in the military. Blast injuries, injuries on the field, on the, on the football field and in the battlefield. Cooling people down is going to be a huge benefit for people in the future. And it was developed at the Miami Project. We, we are now stimulating the brain and re reawakening synapses and, and, and cells within the spinal cord to, to begin to regenerate again. People are moving arms and legs for the first time. We are implanting computers in people's brains now, and they're retraining their body how to walk and move again. The things that we're seeing, both basic science and clinical science are miraculous. We are at the beginning of a new program at the Miami Project called Drug Discovery. We have discovered a compound that has shown more regeneration and any experiment that we've ever seen at the Miami Project. The NIH just gave us $6 million to take a clinical trial, all the way to human trials, to, to transplant and create a strategy for using this compound to regenerate the nervous system to get people to walk again. This is going to make a dramatic difference. We've already had a clinical trial in humans, we transplanted Schwann cells, which are peripheral nerve cells in the spinal cord, to as 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 a pilot program to be able to learn about how it's going to take to transplant cells within a human, and we have with the NIH and FDA approval to do that. So we're the only center in the United States that has permission by the FDA to transplant cells into the spinal cord. So we have a whole assembly line ready to go for one step, the next step, compounds, other, other strategies that we have moving forward. I think over the next five to 10 years, we're going to see some dramatic, some dramatic improvements. I hear that as a very hopeful answer, and, and I love the answer. So, Mark, we're we're coming to the end of our interview, and and I'm going to already. You, <laughs> I'm going to take you into. Uh, I, I look. I could go on forever with you. I actually, you know, I write out questions, and I think I've skipped over about ten questions that I would love to ask. But I do need to be respectful of your time and and keep this to a, a listenable amount of time. So what I like to do with all of my extraordinary guests is ask some of the same questions to each guest to understand what it is about people that are like you, so extraordinary, and how it is that you become so extraordinary. 
So I'm going to begin by asking you for the best advice you've ever given to someone or received from someone, whatever is easier for you. Best advice is never, never, never give up. I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Archie Manning, I mean, Archie Griffith, I believe is whoever came up with that, that saying. Never, never, never give up. I have it on my desk, and it's a reminder every day when I see that. And not like I never need to be reminded, but, you know, that's the motto that I live by. I, I wake up every day, and I find a reason to love life. And if I don't find a reason, I make a reason. And that, and that goes back to people asking me or telling me, Oh, Mark, you know, I believe your injury happened for a reason. Mm -hmm. um, I never believe in that, that really. I believe that, you know, it happened and now like, we make a reason. And I learned that from my father. So never, never give up is, is a motto that I live by. Do you have a personal mission? I guess my personal mission is to... Do whatever I can in my power to change people's lives. And and I'm not even talking about paralysis or spinal cord injury. Every day we have the ability to make a positive impact in someone's life. And maybe someone may say that's a cliche or that, you know, that's easy for someone to say, but I, I believe it, you know, whenever I can involve myself in someone's life, I do it. Even if they want me to or not, I've been known to involve myself in people's lives that they don't even know I exist. And I do it anonymously. And I, I love to do that. I love to to change someone's life, maybe get them a job, get them a promotion, help their children, get them into a hospital, you know, somehow, you know, get them a free vacation here or there. You know, I, I've been fortunate to meet some incredible people that might not have the resources to do things that really they deserve to do. And if I have the connections or the ability to, to maybe make a call or do this or do that, I've been known to do that. Mark, what do you hope that your legacy will be? That I'm a man that was faced with an enormous challenge, that because of love, because of family and friends, I wasn't able to overcome that challenge. I was, I was able to create a mission, a movement, be a positive influence in this life, be, be someone who was able to be a part of an organization that would change millions of lives and, and in the end left the world off a little better. And when he arrived, I think that legacy is going to happen for you, Mark. 
Uh, and you certainly have already changed my life. Just just getting to experience your spirit has, has changed my life. Well, I would normally end the show there, but in your case, since you're so prolific, I want to leave our audience with one final thing you said. We all have the opportunity to find meaning amid the madness of life. A catastrophe forces the issue, but it's not necessary. Look inside. Find your passion. Embrace your potential. Get involved. Selflessness and altruism are their own rewards. When you look back on your life, be the person that makes you proud. Mark, I'm not sure you can outdo that, but any final any final messages or words? I don't even want to try. I just <laughs> tell you, Michael, it's it's been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed uh, talking to you prior to this, and and I, I really hope you take me up on my offer. Come to New York, if not, come to Miami. October, uh, October 24th, I haven't forgotten. Well, let me just say one last thing, if we have a moment. This year was a really special year for the for the Miami project one of my donors uh, a woman by the name of Christine donated 25 million dollars as the seed money to build a brand new state-of-the-art rehabilitation center at Jackson Memorial Hospital for the Miami project this will take our clinical trials to a whole nother extreme so I just want to acknowledge her because she's you know, her and so many other people have made such a big difference. And so, you know, again, Mike, thank you for for having me on the show. Look, I look forward to maintaining a, a friendship with you. Thank you, Mark. And you can count on that. And that is the extraordinary Mark Bonaconti. You can learn more about and support Mark and his life's work at themiamiproject.com. And be sure to read his book, Undefeated, From Tragedy to Triumph, which is available on Amazon and elsewhere. And thank you to our sponsor, The Colony Group. The Colony Group is a national wealth and business management company with offices across the country that itself seeks the extraordinary as it pursues its unrelenting mission of providing clients with peace of mind and empowering their visions of tomorrow. To learn more about The Colony Group and how it manages beyond money, visit thecolonygroup.com. You can also follow The Colony Group on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Colony. For Seeking the Extraordinary, I'm Michael Nathanson. Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Nathanson underscore MJ and learn more about my ongoing search for the extraordinary.